Hello and welcome to Lights, Camera, Sports, the third edition podcast. I'm Mike Galtieri, so happy to have you on board, which should be a very exciting show. And we are very lucky to have Bob Joyce, who works for WTIC 1080 in Hartford, Connecticut, the voice of the Yukon women's powerhouse basketball team. So nice enough to join us here this afternoon. Bob, thanks so much for coming on. Sure, Mike, anytime. Thanks for having me. So Bob Joyce has been uh, with the UConn Women's Broadcast since 2001, 2002, and has done full-time, uh, full-time play-by-play since I hope I have the year right. 06, 07, That's Bob. That's correct. So let's just take a step back. Obviously, the UConn women are dominating. I'd like just to get your background first, Bob. Talk about your time growing up in Connecticut. I know you grew up in Bloomfield, Connecticut, and did you enjoy sports growing up? kind of why I'm doing this for a living. I would drive my family, my two brothers, and my parents absolutely crazy doing play-by-play to anything and everything. Board games, go out and play by myself and makeup games, all that sort of thing, and it was a ton of fun, and um, that's part of the reason why I'm doing this for a living. And you know what? To get paid to talk about sports isn't necessarily a bad thing, is it, Mike? No question about it. Bob and I have had a lot, long history. We used to do games for CPTV Sports uh, a couple of years ago, and I always enjoyed working with you. Well, thank you. Uh, so, Bob, talk about, too, did you play sports uh, growing up first? When, what were, If so, what were your favorite sports? I grew up playing just about anything you could play. I mean, whether it be uh, I mean, baseball was my favorite, and it still is. Um, grew up through the Bloomfield Little League, played Babe Ruth, played through high school. Um, I was basically uh, – utility player in every sense of the word once I got to high school. Um, I loved catching, but uh, um, a lot of infield. Uh, played soccer through 10th grade after youth soccer in Bloomfield. And I played a lot of rec basketball because I was never good enough to play on the school team. Not that I ever even tried, but um, I couldn't <laughs> use my left hand for quite a while. <laughs> so that's why I didn't. But uh, but yeah, I always played sports. Um, I was a playground legend playing uh, either touch or tackle football in the backyard or or at a nearby school or whatever. Um, yeah, I did it all. Um, loved street hockey as a kid. So yeah, you name it, um, we probably did it as kids, and that was the great thing. And you know what? Something that uh, I don't think kids get to do much anymore is get to go out and just go out and play sports uh, without parental supervision or being coached or anything like that. We always did that. We'd always get together on the weekends and do something and uh, always had fun doing it. Yeah, you're right. That brings up a whole other point. We could talk about that for a long time. But the AU, the games all summer long, recruiting, uh, you're right. There's a lot of time where you just can't even just go out and play. Right. And, yeah, that's just that's just kind of a lost, a lost thing. Everything's so organized now, even for the younger kids. It's that way. How often do you ever go by a ball yard and see kids actually just going out playing? You don't really anymore. Uh, maybe maybe the inner, city, inner cities when they're playing basketball or something like that, but but uh, that's about it. No question about it, Bob. And when I was doing research on you the, this morning, and, uh, I really was impressed with your story about how you went to Eastern uh, for a little bit, and then you told your dad, you know what, it's not worth the money here. I, I, we're wasting money here, and you were so committed to the broadcasting, even at such a young age. I thought that was a cool story. Yeah, you know, I was a phys ed major at Eastern for one semester. My dad worked out in Willimantic, and we are driving home, and it basically came down and said, you know what, I just I just don't want to do this. You know, this isn't what I want to do. And, you know, I told my dad what I wanted to do, and he says, hey, you know, you got to like what you do in your life. Because if you don't, it's just not worth it. It's not worth going to work. It's part of the reason why I do what I do. And the other thing is, you know, my dad worked for the phone company for 35 years. 
and he always had opportunities to be a manager. But one thing he didn't want to do, which was one of his great traits, he never wanted to bring his job home with him. And if that would have been the case if he was a manager, the phone would have been ringing all the time. He wanted to be home with his, with my mom and my, my, brother, my two brothers and myself and, and spend time with us, and he was able to do that. And that's something that... You know, I took very seriously as a dad when my when my son was growing up. You know, one of the great things I was lucky enough uh, working mornings at TIC. You know, you're out of new, out of work by either noon, one o'clock in the afternoon. I never, I I think maybe I missed maybe three of his baseball games the entire time he played in high school. Um, I was there for most of his travel basketball when he was playing growing up, and I was very lucky to do that. Um, you know, it'd be a lot harder now being the full-time voice of the UConn women. But uh, but then, um, you know, I took a lot of the traits that my dad taught me and I, and I brought them to my own life. And I'm happy to say I have a very successful, very uh, well-educated young man who worked his tail off and has the same values that my wife and I have. Yes, and I met your son too. I believe you went to Hofstra, right? He He's doing broadcasting as well down in North yeah, Carolina. He works for IMG, which is uh, funny, our, our radio rights holder. And uh, for the UConn IMG Sports Network, he has been down there three years. His various schools have been um, Marshall, Arizona, and West Virginia. Uh, he, he's even done a lot of our games this year uh, between the men's and women's games and some hockey games. And, and it's just great to, great to have him in the business. And I would dare say the kid's got a pretty good future in this business. He works really hard. He's, he's covering the entire country, Pac-12 and up in the Northeast. Well, at some point. I mean, you know, every, every year he gets assigned a new school. But um, but his main school this year is West Virginia, and uh, his secondary school is uh, UConn. So uh, it's good to have him on board. Well said. And, Bob, so let's talk about the time after you left school and you were starting off. Uh, just kind of give us your step-by-step of your career and uh, the early days with WTIC. And then and as well, I believe you were at WMAS for a couple of years as well. Uh, my first job out of uh, school was actually running WRCH when it was automated. And it was easy listening music. You just basically had to keep the automation on the air. Uh, my first on-air job was at the AM station, which was Big Band, WRCQ. It was 9, 10 a.m. Um, so I got a real great education in music there. As far as the sports goes, uh, started doing Bloomfield High School basketball on our public access. Did that for about three or four years. Uh, went up to Enfield, uh, Continental Cable, as it was known back then. Uh, they happened to be doing a game in Bloomfield. It was a, a state tournament game, like for softball, and this was in the mid '80s. And the following year, I hooked up with them. I mean, they did anything and everything during the fall, winter, and spring. So it was over an eight-town coverage area, and they were doing a game a week. So it was easy to get a lot of experience. Uh, worked up at WMAS for a little while, uh, for a couple of years, um, filling in on the weekends, various sh- you know, various uh, shifts during the weekend, overnight shifts, that sort of thing. And then I was lucky enough to get uh, hook up with the Whalers for, for 10 wonderful years. And during that early time with the Whalers, I uh, got my foot in the door at WTIC. Got to work with some fabulous people, including the, the legendary Bob Steele and uh, the very classy. And too bad he's gone, Arnold Dean. Um, learned a lot from him. And as they say, the rest is history. You know, we're talking about Bob Joyce here, voice of the UConn women's basketball team, works uh, alongside Debbie Fisk and WTIC 1080. And, Bob, you know, I'm interested in those Whaler years. Uh, I was younger when they were kind of in the mid-'90s. It was my memories go early 90s. But uh, the late 80s, early 90s for the Whalers kind of the heyday, and that's when you were there. Uh, I started 87-88, which was the year after they won the division. So not quite, and I used to go to games. Um, 
Right on the heels right, of the 86. Right, I mean, yeah. they were all still there. But, I mean, they were good. Uh, 89-90 was a really good year. The only thing that, you know, the problem was they played in the best division in hockey. So they still finished fourth in the NH in the uh, division, the Adams division. Yeah, the Adams division. But they had the seventh best record overall. You had Boston, I think, was one. Montreal was three. And Buffalo was five. And the Whalers were seven overall, if you own the point standings. And they lost a seven-game series to Boston that year. Series that they should have won. I mean, they easily could have been up three games to one. Uh, Ray Bork was out with an injury. Uh, Bruins were down 5-2 in game four in Hartford. Bruins were playing, or Whalers were playing with a lot of confidence, but early early in the third, Bruins got a goal. Uh, Andre Lacroix and Chuck Caton were up in the booth during the game, and they could sense that something was starting to change, like the Whalers were getting defensive and, and trying to protect the lead. And they couldn't. And the Bruins came all the way back, took the lead, uh, won the game, won the series in seven. And it was a great series, but uh, a lot of people, you know, around here will look back at that game four forever as maybe the turning point of the franchise because the next year, everything changed. Uh, Richard Gordon was the owner, um, you know, the year like 89, 90, he took over, or 88, I think he took over, but. It changed. The personnel began to change because they were sick of being in last place in the division or you know, finishing fourth in the division. I think they panicked. Yeah. Uh, they, yes, they, they, they started doing they started making trades that just didn't make sense. March fourth, nineteen ninety one. Olfi to to Pittsburgh for, for Rob Brown and John Cullen, that didn't make any sense. Um, the thing that they needed was a goalie. You know, Peter Sidorkovich was a was a serviceable goalie, but he wasn't a Mike Liu type. And they needed something better. And I think they panicked, and they, they made mass changes, and it, and it changed the whole whole direction of the club. And before even that trade, Mike, uh, in December of uh, 90, Ricky Lee stripped the captaincy away from Ron Francis. That was really the whole start of it, of the downfall. And unfortunately... Do, do you know why he did that? The whole, uh, history? You know what? I don't. Um, Arnold Dean actually broke the story. He was in Buffalo. Um, he was with a uh, with a, a contest winner, and uh, what and part of the contest was tr- traveling with the Whalers to Buffalo for a game and tickets. And Arnold broke the story that morning at practice. I was doing the midday show, producing it, and he called me and says, "Hey, we got to get this on the air. Ronnie's been stripped of his captaincy. Uh, maybe maybe he wasn't tough enough. I don't know. But it was. But you know, in in the minds of Whaler fans, that was the worst thing that could have happened. And that's when the dominoes started to fall in a very bad way." And the franchise never recovered from it. And then, of course, the Richard Gordon years led into the Peter Carmanos years, and uh, we all know what happened April 13th, 1997. Yes, sadly. <laughs> very, very sadly. And April 13th, 1997, the last game in Hartford. Um, as sad a day it was, I have to tell you, Mike, it was maybe one of my most rewarding days of my career, uh, just working on the broadcast with Chuck. And then we did three hours on WTIC after the game. Uh, we put a lot of pieces together for that particular show. We took callers from uh, listeners and fans, and it was just it was uh, it was one of those days where, as sad as you are about the event, you just it, it, it validated everything. It was one of those days in my career that validated the reason why I do what I do for a living, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Do you think now, if you had a guess, do you, you think, obviously, Harvard Whalers now the Carolina Hurricanes, do you think Carmanos at all regrets that moving down to uh, North Carolina looking back on nope. it? Nope. Now 20 years away? Nope. Nope. 
I know he doesn't. Um, he try he wanted out of Hartford so bad, and every time it seemed like every time the state of Connecticut tried to uh, give him what he wanted, he always raised the bar to the point where Governor Rowland at the time basically said, "You know what? Enough. Take off. Be gone. You don't want to be here." And I'm not even sure Gary Bettman wanted the team to be here. He wanted to spread the league out. You know, you had three. You had what? You had the Devils. You had the Islanders. You had the Rangers. You had the Bruins and the Whalers. You had six teams within a span of what four hours, and then you had you know Philly just down the just down the road. I mean, I think he just wanted to expand the the fan base a little bit for the league. And he took Carolina and look, they won a Stanley Cup when they were there. Uh, now, granted, they have not been to the playoffs down there in nine years, and they're in a spot where. You know, basketball is king, and if you're not any good, they're not going to draw. They're not going to draw well. Um, they're getting a little better, but they're not drawing right now. Um, and I think Peter wants to sell the team, or he's looking to sell it to the right person that'll keep it there. But it's going to be hard to do. I mean, you know, it's the same thing in Hartford. You know, when they won, they showed up. When they didn't, they didn't show up. <laughs> Yeah, no question about it, too. And you, it was interesting, you're right, with the future for that franchise. You looked at Atlanta, they've had a lot of success now in Winnipeg. So it seems like the trend's kind of uh, moving north as we talk next couple of years. Quebec City, I was up there this past summer, brand-new arena. They're begging for a team. Las Vegas has a team, which is interesting. But uh, it'll be interesting to see how the, the dominoes shift here in the NHL next couple of years. Yeah, I, and I don't think, you know, uh, the first thing that Hartford would have to do and we did, and they, new arena. Money. they need a new arena, first and foremost, to have any chance. Because right now, as the current as the uh, status quo, it's never going to happen. I, I thoroughly believe that it would be very, very hard. Maybe as a temporary home, but a new arena's got to be built if if we're ever, ever going to get a chance to get a pro sports team back here. Yeah, no, no question about it. A new arena needs to be built, uh, I think, regardless, uh, pro or college or anything, uh, when you look at the old the XL Center, the current state that it is in. Well, Bob, just to bow tie the Whalers time period with you, is there a favorite game or uh, moment? I know you mentioned the last game. Uh, is there any other moment that sticks out to you from your time covering the Whalers? Well, personally, because truth be told, I'm a Bruins fan, Mike. <laughs> game four and ninety when the Bruins won when the Bruins rallied to win. <laughs> really? I was oh I was I was going nuts in the radio room. Phil Lang and the PR so, director knew I was a Bruins fan. So you were a Bru- just to clarify, you were a Bruins fan even when they were playing yes. the Whalers. You haven't become a Bruins fan since they yes. moved. Yes. No, okay. no, no, no. I've been a Bruins fan since I was a. I, my mom got me hooked on Bobby Orr when I was a kid. Gotcha. I was a Bruins fan in the gotcha. in the mid seventies. For the gotcha. Bobby Orr's stay as a Bruin. Um, Games were on Channel 22 up in Springfield, and you know, over, and that was one of the stations we got on the on the Rabbit Ears, and we watched them all the time. So, um, I always rooted for the Whalers when they weren't playing the Bruins, but when the Bruins were in town, I rooted for the Bruins. And yeah, that was one of my favorite ones. I mean, there's there's some other ones. A playoff, you know, not too much playoff success, um, but yeah, that would probably be the favorite of of all of them. Sat, you know, people had been. <laughs> And anybody who knows me would say, yeah, okay, but uh, but I, I had a chance to work with a great group, and you know, I got to work with Chuck Caton, who is as good as there is in our business, particularly in radio. He paints the picture so well, and between he, Joe D., Wayne Norman, Arnold Dean, I have learned so much from those four. But working with Chuck for 10 years was as enjoyable a 10-year run as I've ever had in, in the business. 
Well, that's well said, Bob. And let, let's now shift gears. A couple more minutes here. I want to get to your current uh, assignment, uh, UConn women. Uh, the basketball is, you know, just talk about your time. Maybe I'd like to hear about your thoughts. When you, when you first joined the broadcast team, what, had you had any preconceived notions about Gino Oriema, the program itself, and had those things changed after meeting him and as you progressed? No, I met Gino, ironically, I met him at a Whalers game. Um, I think right shortly after they won the national championship in 95. Wow. And I had always been part of the network, even in the studio as a producer. So I knew what I was getting myself into. That was that wasn't an issue. So and I and I was always comfortable with Gino and, and I would like to think he was been comfortable with me from from day one. So no, I didn't have any preconceived notions. Um getting used to some of the other people inside the program, yeah, it took a little while but um but no, I knew what I was getting into. Uh I don't think even you know, I knew when I started in O one oh two that uh I didn't think it ever ballooned to this, to where they've won eleven national championships, been the nine straight. I mean, who, who's supposed to go to nine Final Fours in a row, Mike? I mean, it's 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 a fantasy land that that I cover, and even wins Gino ninety said plus that. games. Yeah, no question about it. Ninety plus games twice too. Yeah, and then to be a part of both of those has just been insane. Just insane. But you know what? He's the best coach in his sport in the country. He's as good a basketball coach as there is because he, he says he doesn't teach coach women's basketball. He coaches basketball. And he's turned it into an art form. It is so great to watch when his teams play the way they're capable of playing. There isn't a team in the country that can beat them. It's so much fun to watch. Like two weeks ago, USF was here. And that was supposed to be somewhat of a game. That USF's ranked 20th in the country. And UConn made them look awful because of the way they played. From you know, like the first three quarters were as good a basketball as we've seen from them all season. And when they play the way they do, it doesn't matter what the score is. You just sit there and watch and go, wow. Bob, let's take our listeners kind of behind the scenes. You were a great source. Is there something about Gino that the average fan might not know that would be surprised about his personality or his coaching style? Well, seeing as there's so much accessibility if you're a UConn fan with all the shows, like, say, for instance, SNY does uh, the all-access show and the Geno show, um, I don't think so. Uh, he just he finds the right people for his program, and they've got to be – and he challenges them in a way that no coach in the country, I don't think, really can. He challenges you mentally as well as physically. He pushes you to your limits to see – how good you really want to be. He's afraid, he's not afraid of failing himself. He's afraid of failing his players because they come to Connecticut to be the absolute best they can be. And he doesn't. And he wants to make sure that they succeed. And when they succeed, their success isn't just conference championships or Final Fours. It's national championships. And when those kids become national champions, more times than not. All the other accolades that follow, All-Americans, National Players of the Year, that sort of thing, is a, is a product of it. And what gets me is the year pro- programs have had success for four or five year stretches, but what gets me is the continued success year after year after year, and the recruiting evolved. I don't think fans realize the amount of you know you might think oh UConn women they're going to get the best recruits, but you still have to go out there and do the legwork. Right, you have to get the players, and there are teams that boast, and I'll use an example. 
and I'm like, is Maryland, you know, in their game notes. Well, you know, they just this, you know, their freshman class was the number one recruit overall recruited class in the country. That's fine, and they might be very good by the time they're done. Maybe they even have might have a national championship by their by the time they're done. UConn came into this season. Granted, they had Katie Lou Samuelson, who, when she came out of high school, was the National Player of the Year, and Nafisa Collier had USA Basketball experience. But they didn't have a returning All-American. They didn't have a returning first-team All-Conference player back from last year's team. So everything that's happened this year, A, is a, is a product, is a compliment to the kids for how hard they've worked, and B, on what the coaching staff has done, because it's not just Geno. It's four sets of eyes. You know, Chris Daly has been with Geno since day one. That's part of the success. Yes. Jay played, yes. Jay Ralph played for Geno and Chris for four years, and now has been there for ten years as an assistant. And Marissa's been there another eight. And their attention to detail, they have eyes on everything that goes on. They want everything done a certain way. They make practice so hard that the games are easy. So when you say, well, they're perfect, they've never lost a game, well, Go to practice. See what kind of situations that Geno puts his kids into, and then you'll understand why they're as good as they are. Bob, firstly, let's turn to you on the broadcast side. I often wonder when I listen to your games, I listen to your games often, uh, how do you keep the interest and the intensity going on the TIC broadcast when it's, you know, 72 to 30 in the second half? What's your mindset like going to those type games? Look, when it's, it's radio. So that's number one. You still, there are still people listening. You still have to tell people what the score is, who's got the ball, where it is, that sort of thing. So it doesn't matter what the score of the game is on the radio. You still have to do your job. Now, there are times, like particularly, and I'll use an example this year, fourth period, um, that the quality of play has gone down a little bit because they're just, they don't have depth this year. The, the depth they need. Crystal Dangerfield has to come back. The only really two they have off the bench are Crystal and Natalie Butler. As much as I would love to see Molly Benton, Kyler Irwin um, have substantial minutes this year, so far I haven't seen it where Gino and the coaching staff would trust um, them to put them in spots. Now, he may have to somewhere down the road. But when they're if they play well, it's just fun to watch. And it makes the broadcast enjoy easily, to, you know, easy to easier to get through. Mike, um, you can't look at it the same way as say, you know, your normal men's team or your normal women's team. Because if you take UConn out of the equation, Mike, in women's college basketball, it's very competitive. And you saw that last year with two fours and a seven getting to the final four. Oh no, yeah, they all had they had to beat UConn to win the national championship. Well, that wasn't happening. So the game's getting better, but you know UConn just in its in its own stratosphere, atmosphere, whatever you want to call it, as far as the women women's game goes. This year's been a total shock, but when they play well, regardless what the score is, it's enjoyable just to watch those kids execute what they've been coached, and that's what gets me through the blowouts. Bob, uh, uh, well said. What is your favorite moment you've had with the UConn women? Uh, is there a game that sticks out, a moment, a Final Four appearance, or do they all kind of blend in? Pick any Notre Dame game when Skylar Diggins was there, um, especially the last three years. My favorite game with this covering this team 
probably was New Orleans in 2013 after they had lost three games they easily could have, probably should have won against Notre Dame. The game in stores was back and forth to open the conference season. They had four cracks to take the lead on their last four possessions. They couldn't score. Skylar Diggins won it with a couple of free throws, and they lost by two. The game in South Bend, again, numerous chances to win in regulation. The first overtime, the second overtime. They lost in triple overtime. The game in Hartford in the conference in the last Big East tournament, they're down 10 at halftime. They didn't make a three, but this is when Brianna Stewart started coming into her own. They couldn't stop Stewie. They couldn't stop Stephanie Dolson. They tied the game. They had a chance to win it. They totally botched the last possession. It turned into a turnover, and they had a foul to give. Poor Bria Hartley's fouling Skylar Diggins as she's going down the floor. Dennis DeMeo, the official, keeps the whistle in his mouth, doesn't blow it, and it leads to an easy layup to win the game. So after those three losses, uh, you had to figure UConn was due, and they went out and they took the game away from Notre Dame. Late first half, they went up 10, and they never relinquished the lead. It was so much fun to watch. It was so gratifying because it ended all the frustration. And frankly, if you're a UConn fan, you got sick of Notre Dame, you got sick of Skylar Diggins, and you denied her a last chance to win a national championship. That was probably the most uh, the most uh, fun win to be a part of in all the years I've done this. Well, Bob, I feel like I'm a listener of WTIC. That was great detail. Thank you. That was awesome. That memory you have. Yeah, get, talk to Gino sometime. He'll give even better detail. <laughs> <laughs> Especially that was, that the last was, one they lost in the Big East tournament, but yeah, it's it's good stuff. Well, well, Bob, I think we're out of time. I wish I had more time to talk for another half hour about UConn women, the UConn football, and everything going on with uh, UConn and WTIC. But uh, I really appreciate thanking you, taking time out of your day, and uh, to join us here on the Lights Camera Sports Podcast. You're very welcome, Michael. Anytime. Thanks so much again to Bob Joyce for joining us here on Lights Camera Sports, and thank you for joining us on our third episode. We'll be back again. This is Mike Galtieri signing off.